This is the Literary License Podcast, Classic Novel Episode. Dealing with classics you must read before you die, and finding new life in between the dusty covers. Exploring page to screen and everything in between with your co-hosts, Jesse Woods, Ricky Ray, Leandro Getzi, and Keith Chalgo, who ensure to bring the fun to an old stand. Hello, welcome to Literary License Podcast, and it's Classic Novels um, episode where we'll be discussing The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, which was published in 1890, and we'll be covering the classic Metro-Golden-Mayer 1945 version of the film, The Picture of Dorian Gray by the same title, starring George Saunders, Donna Reed, Andrew Lansbury, Peter Lawford, and Herd Hatfield. And before we get started, let's find out who's with us. We got Barbara Markley with us today. Hello, Barbara. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's nice to see you again. And we have Vicki Ray with us. Hello, Vicki. Hi, everybody. And we do have Leandro here, but unfortunately he's having technical difficulties, so he may be coming in later, but at the moment we do have his name on our screen. <laughs> so he, part of him is with us, at least in spirit. And of course, I'm your co-host, Keith Shago. And before we get started, let's find out what we've been up to. So starting with you, Barbara, what's last, what have you been up to in the last couple of years since we've seen you? Because we haven't I seen know, you since Witches of Eastwick. It's been two years. I can't believe it. I know. I've written a couple more books in my Cozy Mystery series, the Jamie Quinn Cozy Mystery series. It's actually under the name Barbara Venn Kataraman with a V. Um, And I just finished the sixth one called Malice in Miami. And then I just released all six books as a collection. So it's actually free right now on Kindle. Ooh, I've got to get caught up on that. I remember I read the first couple, so I've enjoyed those a lot. Thank you. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed those. I'm looking forward to those. I'll get those. Now that I'm going to be slowing down my writing of um, reviews for books at the moment, I'm, gonna, I'm starting to slow that down a little bit because I was getting like 12 to 15 a month <laughs> reviews. <laughs> like, so, and what about yourself, Vix? What have you been up to since last time we spoke to you, which I think was last week? <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, you just taking care of my garden, growing some sunflowers out back and put my tomatoes out front because the sun is awful out back here in Texas. And it just seems like it evaporates everything out of every plant that I put out back, but everything's doing good in the front yard. Um, Not really doing a whole lot. I've been watching a lot of, well, not a lot of Netflix, but I watched that son of Sam. It was a four part uh, uh, limited it was yeah it's a limited uh series it's got four parts and it was all about the son of sam and all this stuff because i was really young when that happened but i mean there was more to that guy's that the killing than than just him it was like a whole conglomerate mess of you know satanists and cults and it went all the way to the manson family and and at that time it was just really messed up stuff and this guy was just really obsessed with it and kept, you know, studying, 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 and come up with all this stuff. And the police knew about it, just like, phew, you know, well, it was the NYPD. So they said, nope, case closed. We're not going to rehash this. But it's really good if you get a chance to watch it. And um, I, watched I started it watching a little bit of it. I, I, I am going to watch it. The it's Son good. Of Sam, the Son of Sam, always, I always correlate that with the blizzard of 77, because that kind of was going, the tail end of that was coming right. out at the same time the blizzard was. And I remember 
being stuck in indoors for what was it three weeks where you couldn't get out of your doors because of the blizzard oh god that was a ridiculous blizzard in 78 there was another one i think that affected new york city at that time more but everybody keeps skipping over 77 they keep talking about this blizzard of 78 go what are you talking about 77 not 78 i want to hear about the blizzard of 78 and i just i just remember like our neighbors happened to live with us because um you know, that's what you had to do because people were out of food and not electricity. People and, were dying on the highways. Uh, that was terrible. Yeah, we didn't have school and, for like three weeks and the snow was melting in the fairgrounds that they had plowed in August. Wow. It had built its own little ecosystem too. It was kind of funny. There was black snow and it had things growing in it. I don't know what it was growing, but it was there for that long. Sounds like a horror novel, doesn't it? <laughs> it could yeah. be. It really could be. You but know, the son of Sam was like was all over the news at that time. So basically, because the only thing you could do at that, that time was watch television, because there's nothing much you could do, yeah, or, or kill your family members, which is not an option because if you kill them, you couldn't even take them outside to bury them. Yeah, you so- could, but they would thought <laughs> the spring would 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 show everything. Precisely. Besides all the so- dog stuff, I'll bet. But I watched um, what was it? Uh, next of kin, not the next of kin with Patrick Swayze, but it was on Joe Bob. It was really, in- I I've never seen it. It was really good. And then they had Bride of Reanimator on. I haven't seen that before, and I got really got into it. It was kind of funny. I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> it was pretty good. But uh, other than doing my typical scary movie thing and keeping Asher going on his BMX, not a whole lot. We're going to the drag races out here tomorrow night. They reopened. I can't wait. It'd be loud and fun. Drag races as in cars or drag races? Cars. cars. I I would go to those drag races too if I could. I love those too because those are just fun. That's just good, clean, fun drag queen contests. And they're nice people. So they put their makeup on so well. I find that so astonishing. And I was just like, how do you, what, you know? Well, it does take about three or four hours. So <laughs> I know, but they do such a good job at it. I don't know how they do that, but it's just, I'm they amaze me. Children's theater and we did an, um, we did the little mermaid production and to get Ursula's makeup, we had a guy playing Ursula and um, we had a drag queen come out and do his makeup. Now. Oh, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it looked good. Yeah, it really did. So I apologize in advance. There's an air show this weekend and they are like blue angels buzzing my house every 10 minutes. So I can't hear anything yet. I love air shows. Those are fun. Try living next to, I mean, it's (laughs) black. Well, myself, I started reading Dinah Manoff, which with her interview will be out in two weeks from the Literary License Podcast. But I'm reading her new novel, The Real True Hollywood Story of Jackie Gold, which I'm really enjoying. I like it. Review will be out later for that. Uh, I've been catching up on the Creep Show TV series on Shudder, which I'm really, really enjoying. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm finding that a lot of fun. And I've been watching the odd stuff on um, Netflix, really. I watched um, a lot of Spanish um, TV series I've quite enjoyed. And I watched a really fun movie, which is called Crazy Rich Asians. Which, oh, um, God. I, I highly recommend it. It's a two-hour movie, and it's quite fun. And It looks good. Yeah, I loved keep it. Go Got a bit it. teary-eyed. So far, so far on the so no teary eyed so, or besides teary-eyed. that, besides work and the podcast, not a hell of a lot going on. So, did you say teary eyed? Yeah, or the, the movie you were talking about was it funny or was it sad? Yeah, the no, it's really good. It's like you know, it's a it's a fun little comedy. If you're into this, um, the TV series Superstore, one of the guys that stars in that is in Crazy Rich Asians. So, I'll say it looked one. pretty good. You have to watch that. Thank you.
So that brings us to The Picture of Dorian Gray, which is a gothic philosophical novel by Oscar Wilde, first published complete in the July 1890 issue of Lippincott's Monthly Magazine. Fearing the story was indecent prior to publication, the magazine's editor deleted roughly 500 words without Wilde's knowledge. Despite that censorship, the picture of Dorian Gray offended the moral sensibilities of British book reviewers, some of whom said that Oscar Wilde merited prosecution for violating the laws guarding public morality. In response, Wilde aggressively defended his novel and art in correspondence with the British press, although he personally made excisions of some of the most controversial material when revising and lengthening the story for book publication the following year. The longer revised version of the picture Dorian Gray published in book form in 1891 featured an aspheric Preface, a defense of the artist's rights and of the art for art's sakes, based in part of the press defenses of the novel the previous year. So what we're going to do is we're going to cut to the synopsis of the picture of Dorian Gray. We'll be right back after that. The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde In the stately London home of his aunt, Lady Brandon, the well-known artist Basil Hallward meets Dorian Gray. Dorian is a cultured, wealthy, and impossibly beautiful young man who immediately captures Basil's artistic imagination. Dorian sits for several portraits, and Basil often depicts him as an ancient Greek hero or a mythological figure. When the novel opens, the artist is completing his first portrait of Dorian, as he truly is, but, as he admits to his friend Lord Henry Walton, the painting disappoints him because it reveals too much of his feelings for his subject. Lord Henry, a famous wit who enjoys scandalizing his friends by celebrating youth, beauty, and the selfish pursuit of pleasure, disagrees, claiming that the portrait is Basil's masterpiece. Dorian arrives at the studio, and Basil reluctantly introduces him to Lord Henry who he fears will have a damaging influence on the impressionable young Dorian. Basil's fears are well-founded before the end of their first conversation. Lord Henry upsets Dorian with a speech about the transient nature of beauty and youth. Worried that these, his most impressive characteristics, are fading day by day, Dorian curses his portrait, which he believes will one day remind him of the beauty he will have lost. In a fit of distress, he pledges his soul that only the painting can bear the burden of age infamy allowing him to stay forever young. After Dorian's outburst, Lord Henry reaffirms his desire to own the portrait. However, Basil insists the portrait belongs to Dorian. Over the next few weeks, Lord Henry's influence over Dorian grows stronger. The youth becomes a disciple of the new Hendoism and proposes to leave, live a life that dedicated to the pursuit of pleasure. He falls in love with Sybil Van, a young actress who performs in the theatre in London slums. He adores her acting. She, in turn, refers to him as Prince Charming and refuses to heed the warnings of her brother, James Vane, that Dorian is no good for her. Overcome by her emotions for Dorian, Sybil decides that she can no longer act, wondering how she can pretend to love on the stage now that she has experienced the real thing. Dorian, who loves Sybil because of her ability to act, coolly breaks his engagement with her. After doing so, he returns home to notice that his face and Basil's portrait of him has changed. It now sneers. Frightened that his wish for his likeness in the painting to bear the ill effects of his behaviors come true, and that his sins will be recorded on the canvas, he resolves to make amends to Sybil the next day. 
The following afternoon, however, Lord Henry brings news that Sybil has killed herself. At Lord Henry's urging, Dorian decides to consider her death a sort of artistic triumph. She personifies tragedy, and to put the matter behind him. Meanwhile, Dorian hides his portrait in a remote upper room of his house where no one other than he can watch his transformation. Lord Henry gives Dorian a book that describes the wicked exploits of a 19th century Frenchman. It becomes Dorian's Bible as he sinks even deeper into a life of sin and corruption. He lives a life devoted to garnering new experiences and sensations with no regard for conventional standards of morality or the consequences of his actions. Eighteen years pass. Dorian's reputation suffers in circles of polite London society where rumors spread regarding his scandalous exploits. His peers nevertheless continue to accept him because he remains young and beautiful. The figure in the painting, however, grows increasingly wizened and hideous. On a dark, foggy night, Basil Hallworth arrives at Dorian's house to confront him about the rumors that plague his reputation. The two argue, and Dorian eventually offers Basil a look at his Dorian soul. He sold Basil the now hideous portrait, and Hallworth, horrified, begs him to repent. Dorian claims it is too late for penance and kills Basil in a fit of rage. In order to dispose of the body, Dorian employs the help of an estranged friend, a doctor whom he blackmailed. The night after the murder, Dorian makes his way to the opium den, where he encounters James Vane, who attempts to, to avenge Sybil's death. Dorian escapes to his country estate. While entertaining guests, he notices James Vane peering in through a window, and he becomes wracked by fear and guilt. When a hunting party accidentally shoots and kills Vane, Dorian feels safe again. He resolves to amend his life, but cannot muster the courage to confess his crime, and the painting now reveals his supposed desire to repent for what it is, hypocrisy. In a fury, Dorian picks up the knife and he used to stab Basil Hallworth, and attempts to destroy the painting. There's a crash, and his servants enter to find the portrait unharmed, showing Dorian Gray as a beautiful young man. On the floor lies the body of their master, an old man, horribly wrinkled and disfigured, with a knife into his heart. And that is the synopsis for Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. So, welcome back to the Literary License Podcast. So, Vicki, what are your thoughts of the picture of Dorian Gray, the novel? Uh, I, I really love the book. Um, I've not read too much of Oscar Wilde in the past, but I didn't know he was such a complex, complicated, uh, persecuted kind of guy back, you know, back in Victorian times. It really seemed like it. I couldn't tell whether Oscar Wilde was asking for it or, you know, or the people were just freaked out over his, you know, sexual innuendo and undertones in the picture of Dorian Gray, because like I was saying earlier, when I, when it's required reading in high school, you don't really notice stuff like that because I don't know, we didn't have social media back then for one. So we weren't looking for it, <laughs> but um, he, uh, pa- he paints a really good picture of, 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 of an innocent man who's basically innocent. And then he just goes down that path where he's not so innocent. And uh, he listens to, uh, Oh, what was his name? Lord Henry Wilton. Lord Henry. Yeah, but he was he was like the most negative person in the world. I guess uh he I guess he was jealous of his youth. He didn't appear to seem in the book that much older, I guess, but I guess he was already missing his youth before he made Dorian, you know, he, that picture's always gonna be beautiful, but you will not be. 
you know, and then he's kind of Faustian, I guess. He makes a deal with something or he wishes that he could stay younger and look like the picture the whole time. Hence the picture of Dorian Gray. But uh, I, I thought it was a really well done novel. I mean, it was an easy read for me. I don't know about you guys, but it kept about, my attention. <laughs> what about yourself, Barbara? What's your initial thoughts? Well, what was interesting for me was I read it when I was young, and I, I think I was probably in middle school. And at that point, I was obsessed with science fiction and fantasy. So I think I really fixated on the picture and how, how you know, the, the magical realism of having a picture that gets older while you don't. And I didn't think about the societal part at all. I don't think, I think I was very naive. I don't think I thought about the homosexual and sexual I didn't. innuendo or anything. I mean, at all. And so now reading it again, many decades later, is a totally different experience. And as I was reading it, it seemed to me that, um, well, I, I, it seemed that the artist, you know, the artist saw him as his, saw, saw, uh, Dorian Gray as his muse yeah, yeah. and his beauty was inspiring to him and I, not that Wooten and Lord Wooten who was all they were all the same age I think they were all young um, he he was trying to um, corrupt he was trying to corrupt yeah. Dorian Gray not because he thought it was fun or for kicks or whatever I just I'm not really sure what his motivations were. He was just a negative kind of dark individual. Do you think that he was in the book? Because I know how you say he's trying to corrupt Dorian, but does he actually, is he corrupted himself? Is he actually going around and doing all these things that Dorian ends up doing? Or does he want to live vicariously through Dorian? Right. I think he was trying to live vicariously through him because he gives him this book that's supposedly scandalous. Yeah. The yellow book. Right. And I think he was just, getting a kick out of manipulating this really naive guy into his view of the world or what he said was his view of the world, that pleasure is everything. Hedonism is everything. Yeah. Charities are for suckers, basically, you know, (laughs) it's just so unpleasant to see, you know, sick and ailing and poor people who cares about the poors. We're rich. We're, we're young. We're handsome. Let's live life to the fullest. And I think he saw Dorian Gray as a blank, blank slate. And I think Dorian Gray actually was a blank slate. But obviously, you can't yeah. you can only corrupt people who want to be corrupted. It didn't take much to turn <laughs> him to the dark side, did it? Well, I also think that um, it kind of reading Dorian Gray always reminds me of Fight Club. And there's one there's one line in Fight Club that always when you had the really beautiful guy. And they have a, you know, they do a fight, and basically they take the beautiful guy and he beats the hell out of him until he like polarizes his face. And when asked why you do that, the guy goes, "I just want to destroy something beautiful." And that kind of reminds me of Lord um, um, Henry here, because I kind of wonder, like, you have someone so naive, so pretty, and basically there is no depth to his beauty basically they're basically it's all surface beauty because right. because there's that well is pretty much an empty well it's with true. dorian yeah and um and i think henry um you know as you're saying it basically you have to you know if you want to be corrupted i mean you got to take some responsibility you can't always play the victim in your life because you know you are whenever you are a victim in your life, these are choices that you've made in your life. Now, Dorian has the choice of whether to listen to Lord Henry or not. He decides to listen to him. So Dorian's not a complete innocent here. He's chosen to go that way. Plus, I mean, he also... The, the angel, you got the angel, the devil. Basil, on the other hand, is a moral man. 
Mm-hmm. You know? Well, he's very, but he's very, very moral. But at the same time, he is he's not still very, in love with Dorian. Well, he's in love with Dorian, but at the same time, he's not—he's not very influential in, in anything that he does. He's not very—he's not very strong in his convictions. Um, yeah. He's—he he lives his life as a moral man. But to be honest, when it comes to discussing his morality and what his beliefs and morality, he's not very strong in his restitutions of how he, how his life or how life should be. Right. you know and you know and then you have lord henry who it's a game for him and the way that he right. can corrupt um dorian and uh, well, corrupt anyone he's not just dorian he tries yeah. to corrupt i mean every single social setting this is this kind of guy this yeah. is the kind of guy that you bring that you haven't they bring at the party because they're fun because they they have that bitterness that that little catty bitterness about life and they're negative about everything but it's kind of done in jest because at the same time i don't think lord henry actually believes exactly what he's living because he is his life is a moral life i mean the thing is he you know his you know he is part of high society he i mean the thing is all these things about giving away to charity he's part of giving away to charity he's going to these charity balls he is participating in what you know his aristotle uh, his aristocratic way of life I he's think very much involved that in the that. problem with that is though is that you know <clears throat> lord henry starts being emulated by dorian because he's such a he's so easily impressionable at the it's like having i guess he, he doesn't really say where he, he just comes out of it he just comes into the picture because his parents are dead well i think i think um Lord Wooten is the, is the Howard Stern of his time. He's yeah. the shock, right? He just says things to shock people, but he doesn't actually do them. But as far as Dorian Gray, That's I mean, right. no one can take advantage of you. What they say, no one can walk all over you unless you lay on the ground. And right. I mean, he's very willing to be corrupted. And I read a quote from Oscar Wilde where it said, I see myself as Basil the artist. Other people see me as Lord, as Lord Wooten. Right. And um, I am Dorian Gray in certain circumstances or something. So, you know, the artist, he is, you know, his himself, he, he is himself in that story. And, you know, he said, as an artist, you put yourself into the story. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't not. I mean, it's either things you believe or things you want to disprove or whatever you want to do. But your philosophy of life ends up in that story. And um, so he's making this philosophical argument throughout the book. I mean, another thing you have to look at Dorian is, is that if you look at Dorian's background, Dorian, um, you know, mother died at a young stage. He's left with his um, grandfather, his cantankerous old man, who's very bitter, not very nice person. So to be honest, I mean, if, if Lord Henry is such a horrible person, if you're growing up with something that horrible and this is your background, you think you'd recognize that somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, if that if this is your whole life, but, you know, Dorian basically never had to, you know, as I said before, he's an empty well. He never had to fill that thing, that that well up with anything. Basically, he's just a beautiful picture guy. That's it. He's just beautiful. There's nothing. There, there's no personality there, Dorian. No substance. Brother. Dorian does not have a personality. Right. Of a lot of rich frat boys I met in college, there's just no substance. <laughs> Just not a whole lot going on, I know. Right. But if you think about the fact that um, Oscar Wilde was, if if you look at the book as a philosophical argument on how to live your life, the fact that Dorian Gray dies for his hedonism, you know, he becomes this corrupt, horrible person who ends up dying 
I think, you know, he said he's rejecting that he's rejecting the hedonism as a way of life because he says, look at this horrible end this guy came to. This is what happens when you live your life this way. Well, I mean, he had several chances, I think, to probably get himself straightened around. But, you know, I mean, it all really started the, the most evil when when he met Sybil Vane, who was doing the, the bad, I guess it was like the lower side of London or something where they were doing the off-Broadway versions of, yes. of you know, theater. Yeah. But, I mean, he thought, I guess he, what, he fell in love with her, her acting, and it really wasn't even the love of well, the human Well, did being. he fall in love with her acting, or did he fall in love with the way that she looks, so therefore blinded by her acting? Right. Yeah. You know, it's a bit, it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like falling in love with, you know, a beautiful actress and then and then after that love's gone and then you start re-watching their films and then you realize they're not that good of an actress <laughs> well she was, threw it though didn't she try to like just say oh, i've been in love with him so i don't need to act anymore because i have the real thing and you know and he, that's when he gets disgusted with her because he loves her for her acting not because she's yeah. yeah, but let's flip Mitchell. this around. Is she? Um, is it because she maybe that she had the love of acting because this is the only way to feed herself, and then now that she's got a rich guy, that maybe she doesn't need to act as much as much. Need, well, now she doesn't yeah, have to work for her craft because she's got someone to take care of her. But would Possibly? you throw a whole play and make yourself look like an idiot, though? You know? Well, to be honest, I mean, the thing is, is that as far as her acting is concerned, it's not like she's getting fantastic written notices in the press. It's not like you know, it's not like people are beating down her door to give her the next acting role. She's part yeah. of this acting troupe sort of a thing. So the only thing that we know of her acting is through Dorian's eyes. And the only time that we find out anything more about her acting is when other characters from the book see her acting and then we hear what they have to say. And to be honest, um, even Mr. Morality himself sits there and go tries to be nice about it. Right. I mean, Lord Lord Henry's cutthroat. It's like, oh, okay, well, in this, <laughs> in this special, just, Lord Henry's. Can just, I go? Can I go now? I've had enough. And the other one's like, well, you know, maybe we should maybe maybe she'll get better in the balcony scene, sort of thing. You got the optimistic and the pessimistic, and then you got Dorian in the middle, sort of thing. Well, wasn't she only seventeen? I mean, isn't and I thought she was only seventeen years old or something. I mean, she's young. She's only seventeen, but at the same time, I mean, the, the funny thing about this whole Dorian story for me is that basically you got Dorian. Even though you know, if you take out instead of looking at physical age with Dorian, let's look at his mental age. And at this yeah. point, where he meets Sybil, he's basically high school age, sort of thing. Yeah. And then it's like his friends come by and they don't, and they go, oh, "What are you doing with her?" And yeah. he's like, well, "Okay, I don't want to be with her anymore. Exactly. I don't be with her. You guys don't like her. I don't want to be with her." And and then what we get is Dorian's mental age through the story, basically. So, and he's always a few years behind with his real ages anyway, sort of thing. And it, it was a bit like high school, basically. It's like, oh, my friends don't like you, so therefore I'm no longer going to like you. <laughs> it's, it's like that, <laughs> well, that, that did kind of remind me of that. I will say that did cross my mind. Well, and also the fact that she's only doing Shakespearean plays and then, you know, Ophelia kills herself when Hamlet rejects her. Yeah. I mean, I think he's like got that little imagery going on there and the echo of Shakespeare. Sure. Why I mean, not? I mean, Shakespeare and, perfected it. <laughs> well, I mean, all Shakespearean love and love as all ends in tragedy anyway. And, yeah. and, and it's always, 
a, it always seems like a surface love. I think I know that we tried to make Romeo and Juliet like this deep love. I mean, well, let's face it. I mean, this is a 15 and 16 year old person, basically. And this is like at that age, like every everything's the end of the world at that time. And yeah. You know, and when the whole story pans out, it's like these and these people only known each other for a week by the time they die by the end of the play. <laughs> <It's> like, mm. <laughs> you know, and, and whether and you know whether you want to turn this into an updated version of West Side Story, same thing. Tony and Maria only knew each other for like four days. <laughs> so exactly. Like, you know, the oddest thing about West Side Story is that Tony's screaming through um, Spanish town, screaming Maria, and only one girl comes to the window. Figure <laughs> that one out. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, you know, but there's this idea of love, this uh, fantastical idea, young love. Oh, I'm going to, you know, jumping into this relationship and then your friends don't find out about it. And the thing is, is that if there was any depth between the love between Dorian and Sybil and it was like a long lasting relationship that wasn't jumping from one, you know, from you know, meeting to bed to marriage very quickly. Well, they insinuate that they might have spent a night together, though, didn't they, kind of? But it was very, very, but it's very, very quick. Is I mean, we're talking about a relationship that was over like a couple weeks. Yeah. I, and they're already engaged or whatever. Yeah. But they didn't Precisely. live a lot longer back then. So you had to get, get no. it and make your bones then, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, let's let's look at the seriousness of the situation anyway. Let's sit there and say that that this is a love affair, and let's say the story goes a different way, and let's say that Dorian and Sybil decide to get married. There's no way that Sybil would be be accepted in the society anyway. She's going to be a joke. She's going to be the actress. She's going to be the gold digger that done well for herself. Right. That's basically the, that's the that's the reality of the situation. Well, she was poor, life. wasn't she? Oh yeah, she was, she was poor. East, poor East when, and she would, you know, she'd be the wench. She's an act, and acting at that time. If you're an actress, that's the lowest form of. <laughs> I mean, prostitution kind of varies to slightly yeah. below acting at that. But just in, in Victorian times, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I know, but people loved going to the theater, though. So I mean, how could it be? One step there, above yeah, but, but, no, but there's a difference of going and seeing something on stage and inviting the stage into your house. <laughs> there's a uh, t- I mean, <laughs> I like, well, I wasn't thinking of it like that, so that's why we know, debate these things. You know, you know, it, you know, it, it you know, thing, she you calls know, him Prince Charming. She doesn't even really call him by Dorian. And then you got her brother James, who's already seeing that this guy's probably going to break his sister's heart. But you would think that James would be happy that she's dating a gentleman with lots of money, but James isn't having any, I guess. He's afraid, well, no, he's afraid she's, he's going to take advantage of her. And of course, right, because she's probably, you know, a virgin and never but, known know, a this man. Is where, but this is where I think there's a lot of misinterpretation of Dorian Gray, because look at look at the text. What is Prince Charming known for? Waking up the sleeping. Prince Charming comes in and rescues the girl from her dreary life into a life of luxury and castles yeah i know you know and the thing is you know so you know was she in love with him i mean the thing is okay i mean he does ruin her reputation by breaking up with her and stuff like this that does ruin her reputation so there there is a form of death there with her anyway um but i mean calling him prince charming that tells you exactly right there he's coming to rescue me from yeah true life. true that's a Prince Charming does. Whether you're looking at Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, or whatever tale you're looking at, that's what Prince Charming is. He is the guy that comes in on his white steed, who's from royalty, comes in and sweeps you up and going to deliver you into a life of privilege. Well, seeing as that we talked about it, and it's like you're saying that acting is like the low 
you know, career on the totem pole. Do you think that um, Oscar Wilde was trying to vilify or put out there how much he just, you know, was it, was it his dislike of maybe women as Victorian? Well, I don't think it's so much of his, uh, I mean, as far as Dorian Gray's, um, um, most of his um, best friends were women anyway. He got along very well with women, like most bisexual or gay men. Women tend to be their best friends anyway. I don't think he's one of these, you know, gay hating women, you know, you know, gay, gay, gay guys who hate women for the sake of hating women. I don't, you know, he's not, you know, he's not one of those lesbians that hate men because I'm a lesbian now. I don't think he wasn't <laughs> one of those, but, he, but he, you know, you know, so I think, but basically, you know, the thing is, you've got to remember that Oscar Wilde uh, is very much embedded in this aristocracy, this, this middle class, it's, and it, they're considered middle class. That's what middle class was in this time, right. Victorian age. Mm-hmm. And, and if you look at his other stuff, the importance of being earnest and his other stuff, everything is very much deep seated in that um, class system. Yeah. Well, it's funny. It's like, you know, when you think of Oscar Wilde, you think of witty things that he said, Yeah. you know, he must've been the life of the party. Right. But then, you know, and that's Lord Wooten. He's the life of the party, always saying witty things. But after a while, it gets it gets tiresome, right? It's all there's no depth to anybody. There's no characters. They're all just like these cardboard cutouts of. They are. They really none of them have any serious depth to them. No, nothing. You know? But I just wonder about the style of the time. I mean, it was 1890. You know, I mean, style yeah. change all the time, and. Um, he maybe he wasn't trying to do a character study. He was trying to, you know, make an argument. And so he used these cardboard cutout kind of people. Um, Cause Dorian never, I mean, nobody, nobody develops, nobody grows, nobody transforms except for Dorian just gets worse and worse. Yeah, exactly. And then we Lots find out Sybil. Where he started, you know? Well, is it when he found out Sybil killed himself? Is that the first time he looks at the portrait and notices like, no, well, the, the snare when he breaks up with her, and then that's right. After okay, this, yeah. After the suicide, oh, but she kills that, herself because she's. But then again, there's no again. guilt with her. Sick. I mean, I think his guilt only lasts like a couple hours. Right. Then he goes to the opera, but that was the turning point of where he could have been a good person. Right. And he said, exactly. "Nah, I don't think so." No, you got Lord Henry just saying, "No, you know, think of it as an art form." You know, <laughs> she kills herself. <laughs> It's like art, equivocate that to life. You know, this guy was like, whoa. Well, but there is an artisticness of, you know, love lost and the person commits suicide by throwing themselves off a cliff or, you know. I have never liked anybody that much. Well, that's what he said. No one's ever killed themselves for me. Like he's jealous, right? It's like, wow, that's really great. You've, you've reached the pinnacle. Someone killed themselves over you. It's like, that's true. It's that probably exceeded his wildest expectations as far as, you know, not really so much misogyny, narcissistic, maybe. Right. No, but he's got, he's like a sociopath. I mean, he's got no, no feelings for anybody else. He doesn't, I mean, nothing matters at all except having a good old time and being, you know, appreciated for being clever and all that. So. That's when, isn't that, he gives him the, um, well, it's when he gets that morally, they call it morally poisonous French novel. I think I saw a title for that somewhere because I will actually look for that book. <laughs> I want to see what was so wonderful about this book. <laughs> I mean, interesting enough, though, if you look at Dorian Gray as a, let's sit there and just, let's just switch the plot line a little bit and make Dorian Gray a drug addict. 
and okay. pretty and pretty much what you have is the the Dorian Gray is basically his descent into becoming a drug addict, and basically it's only when he gets hits rock bottom that he needs to save himself. And it's and, and the whole thing's there. Basically, you know, he's here, and all of a sudden, he's like, you know, and hedonism is basically his drug so, yeah, choice. And do it, yeah, he is, he is. Let's not forget the opium yeah. dens. Yeah, he does go to the opium den. But I also think um, Dorian Gray is also a lot to have to do with people's fascination with youth and beauty. Mm-hmm. And youth and yeah. beauty tend to get, get you get away with anything, right? Sort of thing. It's true. But just because, but to be honest, just because a lot of young and beautiful people are quite vile, and vile beneath the surface. Sure. And this is also what he's trying to. I think this is also another thing he's trying to say is that just because you're beautiful doesn't mean that you're not vile at heart, dark at heart. No. But and maybe I, you need to look. You need to look beyond the surface and see what's in what's in your depths. Right, and that's a message that still resonates because I mean, just look at. You know, look at the people they put on commercials and look at the, you know, yeah. it's like this surreal, unrealistic beauty that everyone's supposed to try to, you know, attain. And if you don't, if you don't reach those goals, then you're not worthy. I mean, um, it's funny. Um, my my um, husband is from India and my mother-in-law was here once and she's mm-hmm. looking at everyone get trying to get a tan. And she said, in India, we have a, everyone buys the cream called Fair and Lovely because everyone wants to be yeah. lovely. So, you know, it's just what is the standard for beauty in your society? Yeah, yeah, and it's it just, drives people too. I mean, it just does. I mean, but, but who doesn't want to be young and you know and well, vital? To be honest, most of I don't life? think I would want to be young for the rest of my life. I'm quite I, I'm, the older I get, I'm quite enjoying the my the aging as far as the way my mind works. Okay, I'm, yeah, when I was young, I can get away and I did a lot of stupid things and stuff like this and people forgave you. But when I get older, I have to say that life presents itself a little bit differently. Things You look at things a lot more clear. And I like, I like the clarity yeah. that age gives you. It does. So yeah, as far as, as far as surface goes, yeah, you're doing aging. You're never going to look as good as you did when you were younger. Right. But mentally, I think I'm a lot more better off than I was when I was younger. Well, yeah, it's a rites of passage and it's a process, but, you know, it's, I always think it's funny when, you know, like we're in our fifties and stuff. I always used to think that was positively ancient, you know, like my daughter that's positively ancient, you know, but they, when you get to these ages, though, this is kind of cool and it isn't that bad, you know, and I, I have to wonder how much um, uh, Lord Henry actually wants youth or, you know, is it just all a mind game with him? Or is he jealous? Is it all jealousy? I don't think it's jealousy. I think it's his way of, um, it's his role in life. He's the kind of person that you invite to a dinner party because he's going to give you these witty um, affetats. He's going to make, and the thing is, even though he's got these catty, sarcastic comments going on, there is an entertainment value for that. Right. And he like, he flirts into like, um, party, flirts into little parties. He, you know, he's, and he does, it's not like, you know, he's stuck to anyone. He's the kind of person that flits around the room, gives his little bit of advice because it's funny, because it's entertaining and people laugh. And then he flits back out and he goes home. He's the yeah. entertainer. He's the instigator, though. He also is instigating. He's a huge instigator. Yeah. <laughs> then you got Basil, you know, he's like, on the other hand, you know, it's like, this isn't the right way. This isn't how you should be. And especially when you come to that climax of the book where he finally sees the portrait and what in actuality, all the hedonistic opium den, sinful life 
mores that he's taken on or that Dorian has. And I mean, even Dorian, he's taken to, you know, well, he's, he picks up his own youths to, to try to, you know, turn to the dark side and corrupt. I mean, he's doing just as much of it as anybody else. But I mean, you got, you have to, it, it, it just, it's just a great concept though. I mean, the body's not aging, but the picture yet getting really ugly. And I, that, that's what I found really fascinating about the book because it was just a really cool concept to put into to words. It, it reminds me of the silly joke I heard. It's like the two ugliest people in the world get married. And then, you know, they, if they fall more deeply in love all the time. And so they look at each other and like, you're beautiful. Let's go outside. And everyone goes, ah, <laughs> Beautiful. You know, it also reminds me of that Twilight Zone episode where you have Donna Donna. Douglas, and you know she's very beautiful, and and the and the thing is, all this the surge the surgical team could. Oh my God, we made a mistake. She's so ugly. And everyone else is a pig person. They're they all look like pigs. Right now, it's oh, true. Yeah. I forgot about that. But it's, it's, it basically it's the eye of the beholder sort of thing. And to be honest, that's because you're beautiful. I mean, yeah, Dorian might have ch- chosen Lord Henry's. You know, might have taken what Lord Henry had to say at heart. But at any time, you you know, the thing is, if you're going to let someone influence your life at any time, you can stop that influence from happening at any time and you can change your life. You have total control of your life. No one has total control of your life. They weren't married. They weren't uh, financially capable to to each other at all. You know, they were the element of the supernatural. But when you have well, the element of the supernatural, because this is a supernatural thing, it's even a lot of people, you know, make it like like Faust, you know, he made a deal with the devil. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Faust still made the deal with the devil. No yeah. one made him make that deal. No, but I don't think he really expected for it to happen. It's like, I want this picture to, you know. Well, Dorian, Dorian like that but forever. The thing is, Dorian, but yeah, but Dorian was very, very aware of it because if you're not aware of it, why would you hide it? Well, he why, saw the why, what was, precisely because that means he knew exactly what was going on. He knew exactly what was going on with the painting. He knew exactly how the actions that he was taken was True, affecting this know. picture. So therefore, he had to hide it. It's been like murdering someone. Okay, I didn't mean to do it. I didn't know I was doing any wrong. But if you're hiding the body, obviously in a part of you know what the hell's going on. If you need to hide what you're doing, right? Well, and it's he a hit it. for everybody thinking I don't want anyone to see my real self. Yeah, so, and in his particular case, he got to hide his real self in this picture. But um, so everyone still thought he was a beautiful person. Whereas, um, you know, I mean, if we all lived the kind of life he lived, we would look like his picture. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, who didn't feel that way after a long weekend in college? You know, it's just like. Uh. <laughs> but you know, the the thing is, though. I mean, even though Dorian had his beautiful looks and everything like that, you know, eighteen eighteen years on, you know, he's entering rooms and people are leaving because they don't want anything to do with him. Because you know, well, don't you think it's kind of weird? I mean, I've seen people like, wow, you don't you don't look much different than high school. So you wonder if they're a vampire or something, <laughs> but you know, but he doesn't even, ha- I mean, you're going to get a laugh line here and there. You're, you're going you're to have a scar. You cut your hand, something, but he's perfect, you know, 18 years later. So well, it, when it, I got to college, I yeah. thought, wow, this is great. I want to stay here forever. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I went to graduate school and then, and then I was looking around at these 18 year olds and I'm like, I got to get away from these people. You know, they're, they're, they're just goofy kids. 
And so, um, you know, I, I think Dorian just freaked everybody out. <laughs> he he was stayed youthful forever. College. Well, I think another thing, it doesn't matter how, I mean, I think that's another quite interesting thing is that no matter how beautiful you are, and then, you know, your beauty is going to get you as good open as the so doors far. for you, but eventually your reputation is going to precede you. And that's what, you know, and that's what we find out in the latter part of this is that Dorian's still beautiful. And yeah, people are still looking at admirably to him, but people don't really like him. People are well, keeping Basil their distance him away his, from him. His reputation got infamous. And, uh, he, he, it's time for him to repent. You and the know. rumors about him are horrific. I mean, he's, you know, he's involved in every kind of scandal, people killing themselves, people leaving their spouses, you know, just horrible things. And they're starting to think he looks pretty on the outside, but he seems like a horrible person. And he is. Yeah. It sounds yeah. pretty decadent, the lifestyle. Debaucherous. You know, that's the thing. Another thing is, is that, you know, during this time period and during any time period, let's face it, is that, you know, if you're up to no good, eventually people are just going to be, you're just a subject of gossip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, he, he's basically tabloid fonder at the moment, isn't he? I mean, by the end yeah. of, by the end of, you know, by the end of his life, he's just tabloid. And to be honest, the only reason why people are still around him, because if he was poor, trust me, they wouldn't have been. Oh, gosh, no, no. Right. So what do you think about the end where he stabs the picture? I mean, he he's so horrified with what he's become that he wants to kill the picture, which is his, you know, evil and cruelty and, and just awfulness. Um, I don't think he I mean, he doesn't I don't think he's trying to kill himself, but I don't think he knew it was going to happen. I think he was just going to rip the picture apart. I don't think he knew he was going to die that way. No. No, but I mean, he's trying to kill a part of himself. He's trying to kill the part of himself that he he despised or that he found, you know, finally found horrific. And um, to me, it was a man who wasn't taking responsibility for his actions. You think that's how I took it in? It's like you know, basically, he's. I mean, you know, at the end, it's like you know, he caused all this. He caused the you know, caused the death of Sybil. He caused the death of Sybil's brother and everything else in between. And, you know, this all happens, but at the same time, he doesn't take responsibility. He blames the portrait. Right. Well, when he breaks off the engagement and he thinks, well, so I finally did a good thing that was noble and I did right. it you know, for someone else. Surely the picture will reflect that. And it's just like, first of all, yeah. you did it. You didn't do it for her good. You did it just to say I did something good. And um, it's way mm-hmm. too late. <laughs> <laughs> well it's gonna is you're you're gonna take a long you know you have a you have a long list of sins you know just because you did one good thing it's gonna you, there's a lot you know you know it's a bit like you know if you have a you know if you're live a hard life no no matter what you have and all of a sudden the next day you decide i'm going to be a vegan you know there I mean yeah, it's gonna take a while for your body to catch up to that the new vegan lifestyle that you have you know the damage is done <laughs> precisely and it takes seven years for your body cells to re you know rework so it's like you know it's an ongoing process it's not going to happen for just one good deed one good burger it's too little too late i would imagine you know because he's really i mean he's caused a lot of destruction and sadness in his life he's gone through people's lives and marriages and yeah you know i'm sure there was i wonder what that 500 word cut was <laughs> that they did to Oscar Wilde. Well, to be honest, I mean, there were probably a good 
50 pages of this that could have been cut out, especially when he's going like buying his gemstones and his art. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like if you're gonna go shopping bring lord henry with it at least it's he at least he's entertaining <laughs> yeah i like lord henry i mean I, I guess he was supposed to be the antagonist right or is he the protagonist i think i think he's the antagonist but i do think that you know from you know i've listened to different things about this i did when i did a little bit of research on dorian gray and it seems like they want to paint him as the villain but you know and i can understand that but i do think think at the end of the day that if you let someone influence you you got to take responsibility yourself yeah. as well you got to take responsibility because you know if i tell you to jump off the bridge and you jump off the bridge and you drown is it my fault <laughs> kind of it part of it is my fault but another part it's your fault because you listen to me you yeah. know make up your own mind you know you you have a mind you have your own consciousness and you you know what's right and wrong and if you know, and even when you're doing something bad, you know you're doing something bad. Yeah, you might do it anyway because, like, yeah, as long as I get away with it. But sure. at the same time, you part of you does know when you do something bad. <laughs> exactly. And if you do something bad and you don't own up to it, I mean, to be honest, sorry goes a long way. <laughs> sure. So. I know when, when I was, when I, my kids were little, my youngest one used to, he was famous for going, "It's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's not my fault." I'm like. Some things are your fault. <laughs> Something, you know, if you did that, it's your fault, and you, you need to say it. That's that's what a mature person does. And they say, and it's, "Sorry." It's the best way. It's the best way to um, move forward in your life. That's the best way. You know, you reflect on your past, you live in the present, and you look towards the future. Because if you reflect on your past and the mistakes you make, it, it makes you recognize what to not to do in the future. But if you don't recognize any of that, you're just going to continue on that merry-go-round going round and round making the same mistakes that's what happens well, don't forget about alan campbell too though the chemist that he was friends with and he bring well after um basil wants to see the painting and uh basil's like freaking out telling him to repent and all that and you know then he has this rage and he kills basil he stabs him multiple times but this alan campbell he's a devalued person as far as it comes to in, in uh, Dorian's life and he uses him to, you know, use chemicals to get rid of the body. Right. But I mean, he doesn't care about this person anymore and he shoots himself too. So, I mean, there's some, there's another fatality right there just for knowing Dorian. Right. And with Basil, it was, he had, that was another turning point where he could have chosen the path of being good. Yeah. Said, look at this picture, look what you've become. Everything I've heard about you is true. This is horrible. Look what look what you did to my beautiful picture. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I don't even recognize it except for the signature part. And then he says, But you need to repent. You need to so at that point, Dorian could have said, You're right. You know, you're my angel on my shoulder. I should go ahead and, and change my ways. And then he's then he just goes, Oh no, this guy's gonna tell everyone my secret. I have to get rid, you know, I have to kill yeah. him. Yeah. And it's about self-preservation with um, Dorian. It's all about self-preservation himself. So, he, so he's fully aware of what's going on around him. And, you know, it seems funny that Lord Henry is such a very good friend of his. And Lord Henry's led him down this pathway. And he's quite happy living, living this pathway that Lord Henry's being accused of leading Dorian down the garden path. I don't even think. Don't, don't, you, don't, you, think it, don't you think it's funny that he didn't call Lord Henry to actually help him? 
get rid of the body, he had to go to someone to, who he had to blackmail to get get rid of the body. If well, Lord Henry's such a friend, and Lord Henry's so in awe about making sure Dorian lives his dark and hedonistic lifestyle, um, how and and Lord Henry's supposed to be proud of this. How come Lord Henry's not there to help get rid of the body? How come Dorian doesn't? He never ask called him though for help with the body. He didn't look to him for that kind of help. I don't believe. You, Henry, but I don't. Do you actually think that Lord Henry thought he would go to the extremes that he would go to? I mean, I don't even think he would understand the extremes to where people are killing themselves to help him. And and then you got, you know, him murdering people now. I don't, you know. But Henry- I don't know. I mean, it, yeah. I think when you have people who are not very bright, sometimes it's quite fun to play with them. Like my, I have, you know, my sister, she is bright. But when we were younger... I used to tell her that I pay her a dollar. She put her tongue in the electric fence and she would put her tongue on the electric fence. And of course I would not pay her the dollar. And then two weeks later, I would do the same thing over again. And she would stick her tongue in the electric fence and then it would show her. And then she'd fall on her, fall on her arse. And I would, I could probably do this a whole summer and she would do it again and again and again and again to the point where I invite my friends over so they can watch her do this again and again and again. Now, yes, I am a horrible person for doing that, but what about the, per- the stupid person who's doing it over and over and over again? Right. Well, and Henry knew, I mean, it was, he knew what Dorian was up to all this time, you know, what he knew how bad he'd gotten, but it's not like he ever said, oh, look, I've created, I'm Dr. Frankenstein and I've created this monster. He never rejected them. And you know, everything went around in a big gossip, vicious circle, you know, because especially yeah. all the courtiers and, you know, everybody that was anybody, because they all hung out together. Wealth loved wealth, you know. Yep, he knew. He knew what he'd done and he didn't care. No, yeah. and he, he just chose no remorse. I don't even know if that was remorse in the end or was it just, you know, just rage. Yeah. I don't know. I think Sir Henry, Lord Henry was a sociopath. I mean, he really, I really think he was. Mm-hmm. And he was, yeah. he was a sociopath and he was Howard Stern. He just like loved to shock people. Right. Witty and be clever and be the life of the party. But um, he other really people. didn't care about anybody. He just couldn't. Yeah. I think other people were doing Lord Henry's, you know, antics basically and he was kind of just like sitting back watching people do it because it really doesn't explain in the book was he going to the opium dens too or was he you know hobnobbing with all the the girls of you know persuasion and i think henry lord henry's more of um you know do as i say don't do as i do yeah kind of person you know i, I think you know he, he he talks a big game but at the end of the day he leaves quite a yeah, he didn't do any of that. He'd, he'd say, wouldn't it be fun if you went and did this and that? But he didn't do it himself. So right. so now, um, yeah, so the book was different than the movie. But <laughs> I know I've yet to see the, a movie that really just. So before book. we before we get to the movie, let's do our final thoughts. So what's your, so what are your final thoughts of the book? Starting with you, Barbara. Um, well, like I said, it was kind of an interesting perspective for me to have read it as a young person and have one idea about what I was getting into there, and then to read it again when with you know a much a more mature and uh, understanding of the world and go oh, you know? yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, a moment. 
you know, it was a, it was a, a tale of morality and and a philosophy, really, since the characters were not developed into real characters. Although I, like I said, I have to think about the fact that what was the writing style in the in eighteen ninety? It certainly wasn't, you know, character development. You know, if you look at any of those older books, they really didn't talk like real people. That was all just spouting a philosophy. But um, yeah, it was very flowery and. Um, and and but a, you know a gothic it was a gothic tale in a way it was it was a dr yes, frankenstein kinda. tale before dr frankenstein right i mean i don't know when frankenstein was written but i think probably around the same time I yeah think. i yeah. think i think it was the same i mean now that i think about it as the former english major if i had to write a story comparing the picture of dorian gray to frankenstein i think i could find a lot of parallels and what about yourself vix i kind of like the story i mean I, i'm kind of i'm with uh Barbara, when it comes to uh, reading it with an older pair of eyes, too, because I didn't see all the sexual innuendo and and what sometimes what you're reading and it's sort of like watching a movie and they cut to the curtain. There's more to it than the curtain. You know what's going on, but they're not really explaining it to you. And I didn't recognize that in 10th grade. But uh, when you when you read this as an adult, it kind of clicks with you more. And it really, it is, it's a cautionary tale, basically, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of them are, you know, I mean, you, you, do, what kind of person do you want to be? You know, I mean, are you going to be the beautiful mean girl or are you going to be the, uh, the less beautiful, nice girl or can you do both, you know, but it, it, it's, it's a moral story. Like she said, I agree with her. Um, myself, um, it's quite funny when I first read it, I always kind of looked at Lord Henry as quite like the villainous, um, person of the piece. Well, he's kind uh, of. And, but now, but you know, now the thing is, is now reading as an older person and I guess living through the last four years of victimhood that we're now, <laughs> that we're experiencing in our own society yes. and not that people not taking responsibility for the decisions that they make. I've kind of looked at it slightly different this time around. Right. And yeah, I think that, um, Lord, you know, Lord Henry does, you know, you know, just put the seed in Dorian's brain, but it's, it's Dorian who decides to let that seed grow at the same time. So I found that quite interesting. I do, th- I do think that the, the ending of this book very much suits this because I think that it does kind of tie everything up in a nice, big, lovely little philosophical bow about our lives, sort of thing. Right. And um, but at the end of the day, I think you know, um, it's quite interesting. I think it's, um, I do think that there's some. You know, there there are some passages there that kind of went on a bit too long for me that I kind of lost a little bit of interest. But at the end of the day, I found Lord Henry very witty. I found some of the stuff that he said funny, and I found that the comedy side of things, and I found that funny and, and sardonic. And I found Dorian just the kind of man who was kind of a personalityless. I found him with no personality whatsoever. He kind of was a man, a, a store mannequin that was living its life, doing whatever it wanted to, Empty with no price to pay for whatever he did. And I was kind of annoyed because it was about a man who doesn't take any responsibility for any decision that he made. And at the end of the day, he blames everything on a picture, though it's your, it's your, it's your, it's your choices that's creating this picture to happen. So, right. But I, overall, I did enjoy it. Yeah, I agree, and I just want to say that. I, I did notice along the way there are choices he could make 
that he always goes wrong. Like he chooses to just diminish Sybil's death. He chooses not to listen to Basil. I mean, he just keeps making choices that could turn his life around. And yet he chooses to just go towards self. He got over Sybil's death so quickly, (laughs) you know, I mean, it was just so, uh, you know, nonchalant. Well, I mean, if you look at your life, your life is where you are at the moment from the choices that you make. Yeah. Basically. Well, that brings us to the picture Dorian Gray, the film, which is a 1945 American horror drama film based on Oscar Wilde. Wild 1890 novel of the same name. It was directed by Albert Levin and stars George Saunders as Lord Henry Wotton and Heard Hatfield as Dorian Gray. Shot primarily in black and white, the film features four color inserts and three strip technicolor of Dorian's portrait. There are special effects, the first two inserts picturing a youthful Dorian, the second two a degenerative one. The film was released in June 1945 and won a number of awards. So what we're going to do is cut to the trailer and be right back. If only the picture could change, and I could be always what I am now. For that I would give everything. There's nothing in the whole world I would not give. I'll give my soul for that. The vain jealousy which prompted Dorian Gray to utter this fateful prayer was destined to sweep him into a life so fraught with vice and evil that its marks became horrible to behold. For the mad wish of Dorian Gray was granted through some supernatural miracle. And day by day he watched his sins etch themselves upon his painted portrait while he himself stayed young and handsome. Every vile thought and act, every criminal deed left its mark upon the painted canvas that was to bear the burden of his shame. Down to depths of degradation, frightful to conceive, went Dorian Gray, seeking new outlets to satisfy his passion for pleasure. His extraordinary visits into the strange world of crime and sin became notorious. And when he reappeared again in society, men would whisper to each other in corners or look at him with searching eyes. Women who for his sake had set convention at defiance, were seen to grow pale if Dorian Gray entered the room. What was this strange fascination this man held for everybody? To what limits of evil did he drag those he knew? Men and women alike, all fell under the spell of his charm, and yet to know him was to court shame and disaster. Welcome back to Literary License Podcast, and we're discussing the film, the picture of Dorian Gray from 1945. So, Barbara, what's your thoughts of this film? Well, first of all, I was just just thrilled to see Angela Lansbury as a young girl. But, um, you know, when I think about the you saying about the book, 
how um, Dorian Gray seemed like a mannequin. They surely picked an actor who looked like a mannequin. Yes, I agree. <laughs> he never had an expression on his face. He no. Like a mannequin. I, it was the weirdest thing. So I'm not, I, I know there was a little controversy about whether they picked the right guy to be, to play him. I, and I mean, I don't know what they were trying to accomplish, but um, I think, um, of course, Lord Wooten was well cast. Um, uh, George Saunders. George fantastic. Saunders, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I love Connor him too. Reed is always such a pleasure to watch. Um, I forgot who it was to play Basil. He did a good job too. Um, I was just so underwhelmed with the um, with her. What's his name? Who played Hat- Hatfield? Hat- yeah, who played Dorian Gray? And if that's what you wanted, was someone who never moved their face, never looked affected by anything. Never it was carved out of cream cheese, wasn't he? He, he really did. But um, as far as the movie, you know, they were just. Um, I mean, they did change some things and, um, and I'm not sure, you know, if they were for the better or not. Um, but I, I did like the technicolor of the, of the, um, picture of Dorian Gray. In fact, my husband was walking by and he's like, Whoa, isn't that a black and white movie? <laughs> Except <laughs> <for> that. <laughs> so I thought that was a nice effect. Um, it was, you know, it's like when you, it was, it's just a mirror into the past of what you, what people you know, an 1890 book made into a movie in 1945, you know, the whole scene with like how he shamed Sybil just made no sense to me at all. (laughs) What do I know? I I didn't live in 1945. So I guess it was scandalous then. Apparently. Well, actually, um, to be honest, I actually quite liked the way that they dealt with the Sybil character because her being in a Victorian musical, I fit, I fit, fit to that quite well, quite a little bit better than the Romeo and Ju- Juliet Shakespearean thing. Yeah, Cause I mean, I, liked that. Yeah, I can't picture going into like some bar and watching Shakespeare, <laughs> but I could actually see this here. And, and, and I quite like, um, I like the cat and mouse thing at the end or before that she dies. I like the way that was played, but basically it's like you treat her this way and, you know, and then basically let her go, which he did. And then with her killing herself, I like the idea that he paid her off like she was a prostitute, and that that's created. That oh, created. I know. So I, that, talk so, about insulting. You know? So, so, I, so to me, the death of her in the movie made a little bit more sense than in the novel, and I thought that they they did a good way of like building that up and then having that. But unfortunately, by after that sequence, then we're kind of stuck with this middle section that doesn't make make much sense and then we get donna reed shoved back into the, into right. the script and you're kind of going um yeah well i found that kind of interesting yeah, they added they, they they did that with another version the version with ben barnes they had another little girl you know that knew him and she grew up knowing him and i thought that was a nice little spin because i mean truly he, he surely wouldn't be cruel to her you know, she adored him since, you know, I understood why they had that character in there. It was a nice little, you know, hook to it. But I mean, of course, she's going to fall madly in love with Uncle Dorian because, you know, he's perfect. And well, that was the only good that was the goodness in his life that was trying to, you know, that was the siren call of you can be good. And, yeah. And he almost answered it. And then he said, nah, <laughs> no, we just couldn't go through with it. Well, another thing is, is that, um, you know, after the civil situation happens in the film, basically, is that Basil's, you don't really see him that much anymore. So as far as his little girl is concerned, it's like, if he's not spending too much time with Basil, when is he actually seeing his little girl, really? He only saw a little girl at the beginning. And right. then, and yeah. then he starts his, you know, basically he starts his spiral 
right. um, degeneration. And so, you're, and so when she does pop back in, you're kind of going, who's this? And then you have to remind yourself, it's like, oh, okay. Uh, come and, on, and, come he's killed, and he's killed Basil at this point. Yeah. yeah and so, he doesn't know anything about him. It's just, you know, so he's not old. Trying to be good. Yeah. Well, another thing is, and then you kind of get that, you know, at the ending where it's basically it's like, okay, then Donna Reed and Peter Lawford, which is like, are you kind of, okay, I know they have to put American actors in this, basically, probably right. for the American box office, but they're kind of they're kind of slightly miscast, especially when you got everyone speaking like these fantastic British accents. You got George Saunders. I mean, I mean, what a fantastic rich voice. I mean, yeah. you know, you know, we got him here as Lord Henry, but of course, you know. Six years later, we're going to get him and All About Eve doing the same exact right. kind of role, which he's, you know, he's fantastic. And then, of course, everyone else is English and, you know, right down to, um, you know, Angela Lansbury, of course. And then we get these two Americans putting on these odd English accents. <laughs> it's kind of like, OK. And, and they don't really fit into the it's kind of like they were. Well, it's almost like they were square pegs trying to be slammed into a round hole there was that kind of feel about it and then they played this detective thing it's like oh there was a picture well did it have a g on it and then it's like we're running yeah. towards the end and he's yeah. like, oh, okay well you know and i just think that i don't think that they were needed it's almost like holly was saying like oh we need a love interest at the end here to keep it going so that way people that way we have we still have a love story but things you did have your love story that didn't work out that's now let's look at his downgrade you know let's let's see how degenerate degenerate he becomes and we don't really get that degenerate off payoff because this good looking man who just seems to be aloof and hanging out with people who tend to be lit in very dark areas (laughs) i do i do think that faggot for oliver twist does pop in at some point in this movie (laughs) I was waiting for Oliver Twist, though, because it was like that typical silver screen, old London look. Mm-hmm. I was waiting for Jack the Ripper to come out or the lodger mm-hmm. <laughs> or something oh, like that. Home. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it was a fact. I love the silver screen. I mean, the movies, literally the silver screen movies. They're just beautiful. The lighting mm-hmm. and everything. Well, what do you think they changed Lord? They changed Prince Charming to Lord Tristan. I don't yeah. know what that was about, but you know, that, that was his, his name, you know, basically you're this rich guy that, you know, you're the, you're the upper class. And I guess that was a character. They showed, you know, it's like it was on a poster or something. And that's why she called him Lord Tristan. So, I also so kind of wonder, is that because that Disney had um, Cinderella in production at that moment, maybe. Oh, yeah. Boy, you can't, that's hard to, yeah. You don't want to take that came out what 1950, wasn't it? It takes what six years to do an animation film to put it together. Yeah. They probably yeah. said, don't you dare use Prince Charming for this. <laughs> yeah. We got the copyright. <laughs> don't mess with the mouse. <laughs> that's probably true. I hadn't thought about that. Maybe. I mean, um, as, as far as comparisons to the screen and to the book, um, I think I think they've done a pretty good job, really, you know, sort of thing. But I do think that the book enhances the movie. I, I think the movie does really well on its own if you have never read the book. Right. But I do think that um, when you compare the two, I do think that there are parts of the book that um, it is enhanced by the movie, but then there's parts of the movie that kind of lets the book down slightly, you know. 
sure. Well, the fact is that the, the homosexual undertones are completely removed from the, in the movie. And in the book, it's just like, he's my muse. He's so beautiful. He's, you know, I, I mean, everybody's trying to like, you know, woo this guy. It's not like that in the Ben Barnes version. Yeah. <laughs> you know what's interesting, though? I was actually, um, I did a bit of research on the actors in this film and heard, um, um, what's his name? Heard Hatfield, after Doreen and Doreen Gray, he had difficulty being act, um, getting roles because of his bisexual um, acting in Dorian Gray. Really? Yeah, and I thought, oh my God, they must, they might, maybe in 1945 they picked up on this or something. I mean, I didn't pick up on in the film, but they must have it. That's what they said. That was the problem. So he goes, he had difficulty picking up roles after he was working quite well, did Dorian Gray. And then they're going, oh, we don't know if you want that gay actor or that bisexual actor because of, because not because he is in real life, because of the role he played in Dorian Gray. Huh? I didn't think it gave it away too much, but clearly, you know, you have uh, Basil totally enamored of him. Mm-hmm. You know, when he, and that picture was really beautiful, even though the, the old one, I mean, that was, I don't know if they did, I doubt they had coated color or whatever back then, but I don't know if it was an actual painting. I meant to research that part of the movie. Yes, it's, yes, it's an actual painting and they auctioned it off. It just sold for like, it sold for $140,000. There's, there's two paintings. They no, were really and the horrible one and they were real painting. Oh, that's oh yeah. And they've been they were sold a few times. I read about the old one. I didn't I didn't know about the other. Right. Yeah. So the guy who did the, the horrible one was like a guy who made, you know, art of the macabre, obviously. Obviously. And, and, um, the paintings have been, you know, auctioned off and sold and and what they're in a private collection or something. I thought that's kind of interesting. I thought it was really cool how they made that picture in color. The very ugly picture. That's why I was going. I didn't even. I heard that. I heard that one. But uh, it was kind of neat how they did that because it really caught your eye. Here's the silver screen, and then here you got Technicolor. You know, it reminded me of um, Night Gallery. Kind of. Really. <laughs> yeah. Picture. <laughs> picture <Very> painting. <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of did remind me of Night Gallery or those or um, those nineteen sixty horror films because they would use those kind of garish pictures, wouldn't they? Yeah. Kind of well, what about at the end when he's dead and he's laying on the floor and he looks like a monster? I mean, that looked like Night Gallery. <laughs> that could have yeah. passed for Night Gallery. That was pretty, you know. Tricky. I have to then say that was. I think they went a little above and beyond for that part right there because it's like you know if he was a living man, I don't think he would actually have looked that bad. <laughs> Well, he's consumed consumed of sin and drugs and, and, you know, probably I still don't think think, like he would look like an extra from Tales from the Crypt. I don't know. (laughs) Well, that's what you don't realize, because when you see like, what was it on the the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, you've got Dorian Gray and that and he's being romanticized and he's immortal, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I well, guess it's Sabrina depends. as well. He was immortal as well, wasn't he? Yeah. He would be immortal, well, I imagine. So you figure Donna Reed's looking at that monster going, man, I just dodged a bullet. I dodged that bullet, yeah. No kidding. <laughs> what a creep. I, I mean, you, you do have to kind of wonder, let's sit there and say that, you know, this story took a slight different turn and Dorian Gray ends up marrying, you know, whatever. 
I mean, can you imagine it's like the wife is getting older and older and going, you know, whatever. And then basically just like it's she always looks like she's married by a 20 year old and how that would ruin that woman in society. Like I, when they first get married. Well, what a lovely couple. 30 years later. So, my God, what's she doing with that young guy? I find that odd how society just, you know, they got the woman with the the nice hot cabana boy. But yeah. you got the old Slav guy over here with the, the G-string bikini and, you know. You know, the thing is, though, people do say that, but that's still not socially acceptable. I mean, I mean, was Anna Nicole Smith ever socially acceptable? Well, that was kind of a difficult situation. The guy was half dead when she married him. Well, anyway. So wait, Patrick Stewart. I mean, I'm a big Jean-Luc Picard fan, but he was 70 years old and he married a 35 year old woman. So, I mean. You know, the thing is, though, I mean, I have to give it to there's something very sexually enigmatic yeah. about Patrick Stewart. I know. I mean, I saw I saw him do uh, Macbeth on the West End about seven, eight years ago. And he he exudes it. I mean, he just exudes sexu- sexualness. So, I mean, you can see that he'd be virile at, in his coffin. <laughs> you know, it's it's. Yeah, it's when you're old and decrepit. Let's say that you look like George Burns, okay, <laughs> and then you have a twenty year old. You're kind of going, money. Well, that's why Anna Nicole <laughs> Smith. That thing looked kind of funky, but she was really a nice companion for him. But yeah, well, she had her hand in his pocket to yeah money. Um, so at the end of the movie, when he stabs the picture, the picture reverts to him, the young him, right? He become yeah. I forgot because it's a picture, his young picture, but it's got a knife in his heart. Yeah, that's what I couldn't quite um, work out because in the book, when he stabs the painting, the picture, the picture is not stabbed; it's him that's stabbed. The knife is in him, and I thought, like, how did that work? It's supernatural. <laughs> it's Faustian, you know, the devil's. In I, I guess the but devil he, made him do it. He is stabbed and he's dead, but the well. I think, I mean, he screams because I think he kill, kills himself by stabbing the picture, but. Yeah. Um, well, how do you think it would have ended up had he kept going on without ending it? I mean, I mean, this could have taken a really, you know. Well, I mean, I think Oliver, I mean, I mean, I think that Oscar Wilde is something quite interesting here that basically, you know, if you look at Dorian, and B, what causes him to basically have the guilt and everything is basically he wraps it back around to the love of his life, the the actress or the songstress, depending on movie or film, right. a movie or book. But and he wraps it around to the death of her brother, which, to be honest, if he knew anything about her family and he realizes that basically he's killed off this family due to you know the mother and everything like that, but he doesn't right. know anything about this family whatsoever, so. So it's kind of a, I mean, it's good for us, the reader, you know, so it kind of ties things up a little bit for us. It's like, okay, well, you know, this wraps back to the way he was before when he met, when he met Sybil. So therefore, you know, and then he got, then he has his guilt and, um, and everything. And that way, when he looks at the thingy, he screams at because of what his life could have become if he made the right decisions or whatever and then stabs himself. But in the reality of the situation is that, Dorian knows nothing about Sybil's family. He doesn't even know that Sybil has a brother whatsoever. And it's and so you see kind of wondering like because he doesn't know anything about her family, why would her brother show up and her, the, the death of her brother even have anything remotely emotional for him? 
Well, and the disdain of the rich for the poor is topical right now. I mean, the fact that, you know, their lives have no meaning to to them at all. In fact, in the movie, when the the hunting guy's like, oh, bother, one of your people, like, got himself in the way of my gun. Yeah, I know. It's like Dick Cheney (laughs) shooting his friend in the face. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) that that poor guy never lived that down. Well, you know, when Cheney got another pace, he got like a, a heart transplant. I think it was more than one. Yeah. And they asked him about like, well, do you, what do you think about the donor? He goes, oh, I don't think about him at all. <laughs> I, like, I know. It's just like, talk about, you know, cold. I mean, that's cold. I don't know who you are. I would feel, I would be mortified had I shot one of my friends right next to me, you know, just like, oh, yeah, right in the face. Right. Well. I, depends you feel on, bad. A normal depends person. on what friends in quotation is, you know, how good a friend are they? Yeah. yeah well, it's one word, it's entitlement. You know, it's yeah. like it's whatever I want, whatever I need, you don't matter at all. Yeah. But, but the disdain of the rich for the poor in this movie is just like I said, it's like it, it was very cur- topical, current event sort of thing. It's just like, like rules for thee, but not for right. me. Who the poor's? Who cares about the poor? Yeah, who cares about the huddled masses? Somebody has to do our laundry and clean our streets and cook our food. Well, <laughs> think about it. Who was on the front line of COVID? All the poor people. Yeah. A lot of the poor people who were, you know, um, day labor, you know, people who did manual labor. They were the ones that were the most at risk, you know, like let's call exactly. them, you know, essential workers, but we're not going to treat them that way. You know? No, they, yeah. they deserve better. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah but I mean, it, it, as you're saying, when Henry, uh, when Vane dies, it's like, oh, no, he's just someone, you know, basically it, it almost felt like, oh my God, I can't believe you killed him because you could have killed the rabbit instead. You missed the rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, oh, you've ruined my hunting trip. Yep. That's pretty much much what it is. Oh, my God. Well, he had to get in the bloody way of the bullet. So I guess we might as well just go home now. Yeah. For everyone. (laughs) 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 Yeah. And I had to sit there and say, I did find that difficult with um, Dorian guilt at that point changing to that point because i i mean it just didn't make it didn't make a lot of sense like it does tie it does tie it up not, you know i said before it does tie it up quite well for the story sure. but if you look at the logistics and dorian and what dorian's relationship is with sybil's family is non-existence no well i get that he had no he didn't care at all after sybil died but when he kills basil who is his friend i mean supposedly his friend for many many years yeah just and even if he did it in a fit of rage, he just was like, oh, well, I really have to get rid of this dead body. <laughs> I yeah, like, I need you to get rid of this dead body or I'll tell him stuff that you and I have done, you know, basically I mean, blackmails I, him. So I do think that if Oscar Wilde took the death of Sybil's brother and moved that before Basil and then had the Basil and then had the the total like, you know, the the constant the consciousness to feel guilty and feel bad about it it would make more sense it may yeah i mean it says what did you think about the in the book it's you know i guess he just makes a deal with the devil basically and in the movie there's this mysterious egyptian cat you know statue so i guess they they felt like they had to put some you know some reason for this picture to have magical powers i think that's mgm trying to keep up with the universal horror (laughs) 
<laughs> it's like, oh, we got this Egyptian cat. Let's use that because that works really well for Boris Karloff and uh, Bella Lugosi. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the black cat. And maybe the and maybe the mummy was doing really well at that point. You know. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, you have to look at you can't look at these things in a bubble. You have to look at them in context of what was happening at the time and what what was in fashion, what was you know in style. I mean, and it wasn't like Egyptian things as far as Egyptian thing was quite you know about internal life and the onk and all that sort of stuff. So it kind of probably made sense in 1945. Yeah, and I um, I didn't see like it was no invocation for Egyptian gods or anything, but they really do kind of leave you wondering. It's just like what exactly supernatural power you know gave Dorian eternal youth you know i mean something like what exactly hit him up was it the devil you know but because I mean, they keep saying every and, and every case study you see the picture dorian gray they draw the parallels with faust well i mean in the book basically it's um, when lord henry's going on and on about eternal youth and that you'll never be right. as young as you are right now sounds like a jim steinman song but you'll never yeah. be as young as you are right now and tonight is what it means to be young and everything like this and um you know, and basically he makes, you know, he prays to God that, you know, that, you know, that he'll never get old, that he'll always be young. And and I I picture because of the love that Basil has when he's painting this picture between him wanting this bat and the love that Basil will do anything for Dorian at this point. Right. Goes, somehow mystically happens within this picture sort of thing. So therefore Dorian gets what he wants to, but there is going to be a price to be paid because though you may not age, something has to pay the price of whatever you're going to do in your life. Right. The film, I think they use an Egyptian cat because I do, you know, films are a bit more visual. They're not so literal. So they have to do something a bit more visual. And, and I think the cat, you know, it was a nice looking cat statue, something that he could put his hand on and get do a little bit of, I mean, not to be horrible, but um, <laughs> not Bird Hatfield kind of reminds break the me tradition now, Keith. <laughs> well, he kind of reminds me of Andrew McCarthy. You know, when Anthony, whenever you saw Anthony McCarthy in those 1980 films or anything like that, or Mannequin or whatever film you saw him in, whenever he looked like he was trying to act, he always looked like he was constipated. And this is pretty much what we got with Herd Hatfield. It's kind of like, it's like, it, I don't know what kind of an actor he was. Apparently, he worked up to the day he died. And he's done a lot of stuff that I've probably seen him in that I didn't register him in. But in this one, yeah, it's really kind of hard to figure out exactly what he was doing with that cat and what kind of thing was going on. I think you kind of had to like. I think if there's more emotional depth in his um in his acting for this, I think we might have gotten a little bit more from it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, what there was that? Who was that famous reviewer who said about the actress? Her emotions ran the gamut from A to B. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's how I felt about it. He didn't really. He I mean, was I don't know if I emotionless, but the whole thing though, he he was kind of. He didn't really show emotion. He didn't show hatred. He didn't. He was kind he of was like a person who's been shot up with Botox. Yes. Basically, yes. He did <laughs> not move his face. She's 100% yep. correct. Right. Constantly. But he was yeah. such a perfect person for that. I mean, that time and that in that particular film, I loved him in it. Yeah. I, I, he wasn't pretty me, enough for me. I wanted somebody really like. Handsome. I didn't think he was that handsome. I think maybe no. like a Rory Calhoun at the time or. 
I think what they needed is something that when I pictured Dorian Gray, because they sit there and say that his blonde curls and everything like this. Yeah. And I expected some I expected that you wanted that kind of cherub kind of face, that that very cheruby looking thing. Like butter wouldn't melt that no matter what right. he did, nothing. You want that kind of innocence, that innocence, innocence naive kind of stupid yeah. look about person who's never been touched with life so much. And that that person doing all these horrible things, but then you look at him and there's no way that that person can do that. I think right. that's what you kind of needed for right. this role. It's sort of like a precursor to things like The Omen. You know, we have like these sweet little innocent kids. And yeah. yet they're actually just a vessel for evil. <laughs> kids are and vessels do, for evil. <laughs> and, and I think and I think Dorian's supposed to only be like 17, isn't he? So you need some- well, they say he's 30. Well, 18 years goes by and he's up for 38 to 40 years old. So I'm assuming he's like. 18, 19, 20, 22. Precisely. So, you, so, you, so you need someone who looks like someone who just got out of high school, that quite innocent, someone who just got out of high school, but they were like tied away into a boarding school and ho- but homeschool where they never, where they never been out in society whatsoever. You kind of need that kind of. You could have back in the day, a, Ro- a, Ro- a Rob Lowe type or even, you know, um, you know what, you, Brad, yeah, young Brad Pitt, like get interview with the vampire because he was really innocent in that. You well, can almost see yeah. the, a tie-in almost with interview with the vampire. Well, if you had a male version of what Angela Lansbury looked like in that movie, because she yeah. looked like an innocent, she looked like she a, did big, big Tweety Bird she, eyes. Yeah, she looked like, "Why are you hurting me?" You know, but she was really good. But if I had to hear that song one more time. <laughs> Oh, I know the the oh bird song. <laughs> I was like, please. I mean, she sang it beautifully, but how many times did we hear that song? No more bird song. Didn't yeah, you have that's a, true. Don't you have? I, like, you have the budget to add one more song to a repertoire? <laughs> just something. <laughs> just one more song. Oh, it was just torturous. I was like, come on already. She's like, she's well, like they, those one hit. Had, she's like those did. one hit wonders that come keeps coming out just singing the one song. I know. <laughs> Well, that was her. That was her top top ten hit, I guess, for the people oh, back yeah. in the Victorian era. Oh my God! And then he gives her a yellow bird. I'm like, I'm just gonna throw up. Stop. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He gives her canary. Stop already. What happened to Canary when she committed suicide? She didn't care anything about that canary. It's all about <laughs> you, Angela. <laughs> You know, it's sort of like you do, though, like you get girlfriends or you got guy friends or whatever, and they meet that certain someone and they want nothing to do with you anymore for like ever, you know, and maybe I think that's how Lord Wooten was kind of feeling. He was jealous. There's no doubt about it. But in the I want to know how much money he gave her. I wanted her to start singing Beauty and the Beast song. Anyway, this brings us to the end of the Literary Life Podcast. Next month, we'll be doing our classic novels, which will be Alice in Wonderland. No, it's Little Women. Sorry, we're doing Little, Little Women, Women by Louise yeah. and May Alcott. And we'll be dealing the 1936 film with Joan Bennett. And of course, next week, we'll be doing Bewitched um, at our normal time. And of course, our channel will be um, The Day After from 1983 and the film Testament from 1983. 
So, and then of course we'll be finishing up our Dark Shadows episode at the end of the month. So it's good night for myself. Good night, Vicky. Good night, everybody. Thank good you. Good night, Miss Barbara. Uh, good, good night, Miss Vicky. How much <laughs> before another two years go by? <laughs> I'll just have to connect before then. That's and for sure. we'll be seeing you next week for Bewitch. <laughs> okay. And we'll be seeing you next week for our Bewitched episode. And take care and God bless. For the best, but expecting the worst. Are you gonna drop the bomb or not? Let us die young or let us live forever. We don't have the power, but we never say never. Sitting in a sand pit, life is a short trip. The music's for the sad man. Praising our leaders, we're getting in tune. The music's played by the